So uh, this is a, a time for um, discussion. Any particular questions or things that uh, you'd like clarifying from um, what I was saying or other associated themes, then please uh, don't be shy. Uh, there's a, uh, a second mic here in the uh, that we'd ask people to use so everyone can hear the question and also so the questions get recorded as well. You mentioned about the storytelling factory, stop the storytelling factory. Now you told us not to criticize, not to judgmental, and not to do a lot of things to stop the thinking process. Now in a daily living situation, in an office, you go to a meeting, you have to have a constructive criticism. You have to say no to people. You, you may be judgmental. So how do you apply these things in a daily living? This is a very good question. Uh, and also, uh, uh, rest assured, it's not just outside the monastery that meetings happen. <laughs> I go to a, a frightening number of meetings, and uh, my life is a, a, a constant flow of agendas and minutes. <laughs> Some of you might be surprised to hear that. But, uh, I'm on about 15 committees of various kinds. And so... Um, when you're engaged in, in living and working together with others, then it's uh, very necessary to be um, making judgments and to make uh, you know, wise choices and uh, to discriminate. But there's a difference between discriminating wisely and in a, in a, a mindful way. Then uh, there's a difference between that and reacting habitually out of compulsive preferences and, and opinions. So that... Uh, when, <clears throat> when you're in a meeting and somebody says something and your mind goes, I can't believe he said that, that's so stupid, we went over that last week and he knows, and your mind is going off on a rant, You've, you're also not hearing what else is being said. And uh, so that if you, if you then are just waiting for a pause, the other person to pause for breath, so you jump in with some kind of scathing remark like, <clears throat> excuse me, but we did discuss that last week then that's not a constructive comment. <laughs> it's more just a, uh, a thinly disguised attack or criticism, blaming, and it's going to bring more tension and conflict because the other person is going to feel attacked. But if you recognize, well, he was at the meeting last week and he seems to have forgotten that we decided that already. So now what would be a good way to bring it to his attention that uh, this has already been discussed uh, without shaming him um, but with also without spending much more time on this subject. Yeah, what's the best way to do that? So that then there's a whole different mode. There's a, a spaciousness around that. You're still recognizing something needs to be said and that this point has already been agreed, for example, um, and that the person has uh, you know, forgotten that they were at the meeting or is uh, deliberately forgetting on purpose <laughs> to try and get their... Get their uh, ideas adopted, or whatever. Uh, but you are, rather than just reacting out of your sense of, uh, I like, I don't like, um, and uh, what you uh, wish to, to be the outcome, you're more feeling out the whole situation. And you're looking to see, okay, well, um, is this the appropriate time to say something? What needs, what needs to be said and how? So rather than reacting, you are learning how to respond. And I'd say the two, even though the two might come across quite similarly in the dictionary, I'd say they are very, very different things. 
because to react intrinsically implies that there is um, uh, there's no reflection going on. There's no consideration. It's just a a um, uh, uh, a way that the the uh, set of perceptions have been triggered, and they're just being acted on without any kind of um, say. Uh, sense of the the time, the place, the situation, and so that uh, is almost always going to be something that's going to bring disharmony because there isn't that quality of of mindfulness and wisdom that is attuning the the attention to the the whole situation. When you when there is that quality of satipanya or mindfulness and wisdom or satisampajanya, the uh, sense of time and place and situation. Then there is that there's a spaciousness around it. It's not a reaction. There's a the sense of oh, uh, I'm really not liking this. <laughs> yeah, you, you can feel a sense of of uh, disapproval going on in yourself. Okay, well, I can feel a reaction going on, and I'm feeling extremely heated about this. So, while I'm feeling heated, it's probably best not to say anything. <laughs> so let's just sit on that until I can uh, speak from a more balanced place, and uh, let's consider now. Do I want him to just shut up because I don't agree with his perspective, or am I really wanting uh, this to um, come to an end because uh, it's something that's already been discussed and we're just wasting the time? You know, what's behind this? So that sense of inquiry and consideration is the the significant element. So the word consider literally means to be with the stars, like siddha, sidereal. So to consider is to like look at the stars and say, okay, <laughs> what do the stars tell me? That's like you're you're reading the situation, uh, and so that that quality uh, of uh, of consideration of reflection is a way of bringing some more more space into it. So then, then it can be that you say, okay, well, um, this is really going off at a tangent, and um, this is uh, uh, this is um, really unhelpful. So as soon as there's an appropriate moment, then uh, as soon as the chair says any comments, or, or <clears throat> then uh, I, I should say something. And so then you uh, let yourself be be quiet inside, and then when the chair says, anyone got any comments on this? You say, well, actually I do. And uh, you know, I feel we discussed this last week, and I'm wondering why, um, or if, uh, if our friend here remembers what was decided, or... Or where this is coming from, because uh, I feel this was sorted out already. So, um, and that uh, there's, there's no need to go over it again. So you're you're coming from a place rather than a reaction and an attack. Like you idiot, how can you believe that? Because uh, they're just gonna then they're not gonna read the sense of what you're saying. They're just gonna read attack, and they'll defend themselves. Whereas when you are, are uh, coming from a uh, a place of kindness and sensitivity, then even if what you're saying is, um, you forgot that we discussed this last week, and um, you know you're, repeat, you're repeating this, uh, even if it's kind of putting them to shame in some respect, because you're not coming, you're not you're not coming from a place of, of aggression, or you're not wanting to attack them or put them down, but you're just sincerely trying to work with the the, the moment in a skillful way, then even if their first thought is. <gasps> Yeah, he's putting me on the spot, or oh, he's uh, oh God, I forgot. You know, we did decide that, and then they might feel embarrassed or shocked. And, but because you're not attacking them, then 
they're, they're able to let go of that and then recognize, oh, well, it's just, uh, that was just a, a mistake that I've made. Oops, <laughs> we did go over that already, didn't we? So then they don't feel attacked, so then they're not, they're not going to jump to defend themselves. So it's much more of an open and easeful situation. So you can, you can also say things that people really don't want to hear. And uh, it, you know, if you're coming from a good place, then they can receive them. In a, you know, and uh, accept things that uh, might be quite challenging or quite hurtful because they, the person knows where it's coming from is got their best interests in mind. But that takes a lot of mindfulness and a lot of meditation to really know your own intention. Like, I'm doing this for your own good. <laughs> this, this is going to hurt you. This is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. Yeah, you're right. What you mean is, I want to hurt you. <laughs> So you have to really know your own intention and then if you see that your intentions are malicious or selfish or you know, reactive, then it's best to, to defer to keeping quiet or, or going through some other kind of channel like talking to your friend saying, I can't believe that <laughs> we're going over this again. So, so you, you deflect it because if you, if you act from that place of, of attachment and your own biases, then the, the result is going to be painful. As Ajahn Sumedha would say, if you start with ignorance, you end up with suffering. If you start off with wisdom, you end up with Nibbana. Um, and the question is, um, I work in Primark every single day during the week, and it's very busy in the shop. You know, so my job is to go around with this rail of clothes, you know, we go through all these hordes of people all day. I have to be nice to them all the time. We gotta, I gotta literally go. Excuse me, madame. Excuse me, sir. You know, it just drives you nuts. So, but I, I found like, you know, literally. So I found that if I'm actually, if I, you know, so instead of losing my job, I'm trying to be aware of being in the moment with yeah. awareness. That seems to help. So, is that a very skillful way? You know, just to be in the moments itself, yeah, without attaching to the all this. Uh, well, absolutely, know. but also like the the practice I was talking about earlier, just letting those negative thoughts be conscious, so that as you're pushing your trolley of clothes to say, "Well, I'd really like to get a flamethrower," yeah, well, <laughs> I, I do sometimes. Yeah. Torch everybody. That's what I'd like. Yeah, I actually do feel that sometimes. And then just let yourself think the unthinkable. Lumpur Sumedha was very good at, he would riff on these themes of, of uh, you know, thinking the unthinkable thoughts. I want to take all the monks and just throw them off a cliff. <laughs> you know, if only all these monks weren't here, then I'd be happy. You know, and, uh, and just you know, giving voice to those unthinkable thoughts. And then they lose their power when, when you're always trying to say, no, I've got to be nice, I've got to be nice. Don't think that, don't think that, you know. Good morning, madam. Yeah. Then... You know, you just create the causes for explosion and uh, more you know, stress and difficulty. But if you, in a, a mindful and conscious way, internally, you, or you don't, and don't go out and shop on eBay for a flamethrower. You know, that's been very tempting. Go to the <laughs> go to the hardware department. You know. um, but just to to let yourself internally think, well, I'd really like to get a flamethrower or maybe a chainsaw. Just really kind of make havoc here. Then you you can you don't even get to the end of the sentence when you let yourself give voice to that. Then you're, in a way you're you're respecting that reactive feeling, but 
you're, you're allowing it to cease, to end. Whereas if you are trying to sort of, oh, be, I'm, I'm supposed to be a good Buddhist or I shouldn't be thinking that, it's horrible, you know, I've got to be nice. And then you, you empower those, the thoughts and the emotion, the, the reactive emotional patterns through your trying to be nice and to sort of push them away. So that, that, that is a question that a, a gentleman was asking in the, in the break about fear. Say if you have a sort of chronic emotional habit like fear or aversion, and, and you 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 don't like it, you think of it. I've got this uh, this negativity problem or this fear problem, and, and you think well, this is this is my problem. I wish it would go away. If I didn't have this this fear problem, then I'd be happy. If only I wasn't so aversive. Um, if this could just if I could just get rid of this, then everything would be all right. And it, it's, it's quite sincere because you you feel that as a real burdensome presence and. You you are um, say weighed down by that, and part of you is uh, is really does want that <laughs> to go away, but as long as the attitude is this is my problem, and uh, I, and and it re it's it's a real a real thing owned by a real me, and uh, if I, and I, I want I want it to go away. You've created a, a dynamic in your mind. There's a real me here, a real that there, and if I could just get rid of that, then there'd be me here without that, and, and then I'd be happy. And we don't realize that we're setting up this whole false dynamic in that. And uh, the very aversion that we create towards that painful experience, the negativity or fear or whatever it might be, that aversion towards it is the fuel. That's that's what the factory's running on. I mean... I become aware of that banting, but at the same time, you know, um, so emotionally, it's not so not so easy to actually to do that as well. So I found like if I actually you know, just become aware of my own awareness itself, mm -hmm. non-consciousness is very quiet and peaceful, mm -hmm. and try and reside in that. So even if I'm actually, you know, I'm going to get a crowbar and smash half the shop up sometimes, but at least I have that awareness, conscious awareness, which is there. That's actually very quiet. Yeah, that seems a very good place to be in. So yeah, well, th those kind of reflections help you to be more yes. aware of that. In a way, it keeps that space more apparent Thank and more you. open. Yeah. Because that that which knows busyness is not busy. That which knows noise and activity is completely silent. So that the the you know the silent mind has has a, a space for all of the noise in the world. You could uh, pass the microphone over here. I wanted to ask you how much you personally engage with the media, with um, the press, in terms of reading it and absorbing it. It seems to me that in the West, uh, everything we read is negative and has a negative effect on us in terms of you know bigotry or you know, whatever and I wondered do you think that we read too much there's too much out there that's what's cluttering up our minds and and we need an ability to clear our mind but our whole world around us is bombarding us yeah. with rubbish and it's negative rubbish so do you advocate Still reading it, still engaging with it, or do you advocate having as little to do with it as possible? 
Uh, well, my own standard is uh, I don't have a TV. And I, don't, I don't have a radio. Uh, I have a computer. So I, I look at Google News. So that's where I get my news from, is um, <coughs> the um, like sort of News Digest. And I generally um, you know, will look up a, a couple of uh, the major stories or significant things that catch my attention uh, each day. But I certainly don't. Uh, it's it's very different. It's interesting when when I get given a newspaper once in a blue moon, you know, a few times in a year, someone give, give me a newspaper and and reading it cover to cover or looking at you know looking at all the pages of the newspaper, there's just so much dross, you know, stuff you don't really need to know. And as I was saying earlier about about um, uh, opinions, you know that. It's almost anathema to, 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 to say about something, I don't have an opinion about it. Because when you're with other people, you, know, you create yourself out of your opinions and your loves and hates. And what you, know, what you approve of, what you disapprove of, we feed the sense of being. And to, to say, well, someone says, what do you think about Cameron? And if you say, well, I don't think about Cameron, actually. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have an opinion. Say, it's, it's like, uh, they don't have a pigeonhole to put that in. There's no, there's no place for that because you must have, you must have an opinion. So, why? So, um, I, I try to keep up when things are, are having a particular impact. You know, there's some kind of crisis in different parts of the world or, or some particular issue, some some important feature. Then I'll, I'll read up about it or inform myself. But it's it's very very different. Like reading a, a, a newspaper and just looking at a few articles on Google News, you know, picked from various different news agencies. And um, so uh, I find that that's not burdensome at all. So I don't, I don't listen to the radio. I don't have a radio. I don't listen to radio. I don't have a TV. I don't watch you know, TV news. So it's just you know, re usually just reading a few articles so I don't have all the, 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 uh, the films or the people's voices or anything of that. Um, so I, I get the information and educate myself in that way, but I don't have a lot of, of extra. Uh, one of the things that uh, you can do, um, you know, in, in not just Buddhist tradition, but pretty much every spiritual tradition around the world, they have Sabbath days, you know, an observance day, like one day a week when you, you check out from the normal flow of things. And so we have our lunar days, the full moon, new moon, and the two half moon days. And you know the seven-day week, you have the Sunday, um, and then in the uh, in the you know Jewish have their Sabbath day on a Saturday, and then the Muslims have it on a Friday, I think. So that um, Christians on a Sunday, so that uh, people have their day of stopping, so that you can uh, create a, what they call a data Sabbath. Just have one day a week. When you don't listen to anything, you don't you don't listen to the radio, you don't look at the computer, you don't read a newspaper, you don't watch the TV, you just have uh, a day away from news, and it can be quite striking how uh, how peaceful, <laughs> or how or you realize how hungry you are for some information, because nowadays uh, it, it's uh, there's so many outlets, so many channels of information. That people are being updated minute by minute. You know, you're being tweeted and and uh, skyped and uh, all these other strange sort of Anglo-Saxon nouns you know, <laughs> are being co-opted 
for uh, for um, different things that are not just happening to us, but we're 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 sort of engaging in them and contributing them, to them, tweeting people and skyping people and uh, and uh, you know phoning people and um, uh, mailing people, and so that you're in constant communication and constantly generating opinions and reactions about everything. So it's exhausting. Mm -hmm. And uh, people wonder why children nowadays are that uh, in uh, some places in America, something like 25% uh, of children in the schools are uh, on, on medication for attention deficit disor disorder. But uh, in my not terribly well-informed opinion, I think most of the, the cause is just having a, you know, a hyper-stimulated environment. So there's just, it's too much variety, too many good things, too much non-stop sort of blizzard of images and colors and sounds and forms and shapes and smells and such like. And so that uh, no wonder your attention span is at about half a second because the, the brain is, and the senses are being adapted to, to just be hunting for the next three interesting things that are going to happen in the next second. So I'm not, I'm not a Luddite, you know, that uh, against all, all sort of, um, development, but I see that um, it's a, it's a huge issue. I, I was just at a conference on mindfulness in Rome with about three hundred academics and research scientists and educationalists and psychologists and such. And this was a, a theme that came up quite a lot. Was was uh, like how to work with the the um, mental difficulties of uh, of children in particular because of the attention deficit problems. And also why mindful, teaching mindfulness in schools is becoming such a growing movement within this country and in the States and other places. Because it's like counteracting the, sort of the, the, the hyperactivity that's being um, induced by the sort of overstimulating, hyperstimulating environment. So I think as a kindness to yourself and a kindness to your kids and <laughs> that uh, to, to create a, uh, a less... Um, agitated, agitating environment is, is a helpful thing. Like one of our, our friends, the, the the joiner who built the the shrine in the main temple, and um, actually built this shrine as well. Uh, he lives uh, in Bristol, and uh, near his um, children and grandchildren, he said that when he was here doing a, a, a carpentry job for us, he said, "You know, I, I go around to, to my daughter's house and." I'm sitting there on the sofa and I've got, you know, there's my daughter and her husband and the three kids and everyone's on their own separate devices. And I'm thinking, well, hello everybody. <laughs> Granddad's here. Like, but everyone's sort of... You know, they're all in their own separate worlds. And, you know, uh, you know I'm, I'm uh, not averse to technology at all, but I think as as a kindness, as a, as a blessing for, your, for yourself and for the people that you live with, to learn how to do without it or to just re reduce the amount is a, a real gift uh, to others. And that um, just seeing how we spend our time and the effects of, of that upon us. Is, and uh, you know, things like a data Sabbath or just, just minimizing the amount of, of input you have during the course of a day and how much contact you have to have with everyone because there's this mysterious thing that occurs whereby it's sort of 24 hour 24 hour contact and no communication it's it's a strange thing because everyone's connected but their people feel more and more alienated from each other than ever before 
that uh, it's a weird thing that they're actually just being together <laughs> with other human beings and just sort of talking or just being quiet is a is a very uh, mysterious thing so like here with uh, i feel a place like amravati obviously i'm biased but i feel a sanctuary like this where you can come and and stay for a few days and and no you can't use your your cell phone you know no you can't have access to the computer no yeah you you can't there aren't any newspapers you know that that uh, that's a real gift uh, that uh, it's uh, having a sanctuary where you're not <laughs> you're not connected and enables you to actually be in connection with 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 things and i also noticed just recently a couple of months ago there was a, an advert for a um, a hotel an upmarket hotel so 800 quid a night hotel very sort of posh uh, you know oceanside hotel that was marketing itself as no wifi no tv in the room no phone in the room that was its big selling point was that no nobody can get you here <laughs> you can't be tweeted you can't be skyped you can't call anyone you are not gettable and uh, they can, they could charge those kind of prices you know it's huge, gigantic prices for people who just wanted to get away and want to get away so even in that sort of commercial world there's a sense of enough 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 you know the, the heart cries out to just have a bit of quiet uh ajahn you um, mentioned mindfulness and it's a big movement these days but there seems to be a kind of alarming trend to separate it from morality and wisdom what's your view of secularized mindfulness um well <laughs> observing the urge to react <laughs> um well it was interesting being at this conference because this was the first time that the sort of so-called secularized mindfulness movement was uh that there there was a strong presence of the the big hitters of that movement like John Kabat-Zinn from um the states and John, uh, Mark Williams from the Oxford Mindfulness Center and people like that um and the conference the title of it was mindfulness and the dharma so finally front center its connection with with buddhism and buddhist tradition and they had me give the very first talk at the whole conference so uh, and i was obviously clearly marked as <laughs> card carrying buddhist i didn't go in jeans and a t-shirt you know um card carrying flag wearing buddhist and so i i think that the the origins of that um what we call stealth buddhism in the trade <laughs> where it's basically buddhist teachings um but without using any kind of buddhist language um it was really because of uh, uh, and and John Kabat-Zinn he spoke about this quite extensively in the talk is is probably on youtube <laughs> um but it was uh, he was quite explicit about it because he said that um in order to be able to function in the american medical field and educational field yeah he had to uh, to secularize the language otherwise that it, there would be no uh, no capacity for it to be accepted uh, and to for that kind of training and what he saw the meditation training um he said he saw it was such a useful tool and so helpful to him and others that the only way to to introduce it was to strip out the the the, the religiosity strip out the languaging of that um 
And uh, but he fully acknowledged, uh, and he said, uh, and quote unquote, yeah, I've always used the word mindfulness as a placeholder for dharma. That was his words. So just like a substitute word in his mind, that's what he was doing. And he found that the word mindfulness could be uh, accept, you know, was acceptable by the authorities and the the, the powers that be, and that the um, uh, and that by taking out the the religious language and the sort of the overt connection to Buddhist tradition, then it was much more acceptable by the the, the medical community, by the the um, educational community, and the, uh, the the general pool in the states, which, as I'm sure most people are aware, has a a much more uh, rabid and intensely active Christian fundamentalist block than anywhere in Europe. I mean that uh, even uh, very religious countries like like uh, Italy or or um, the uh, or in the uh, you know Orthodox Christian world they they don't have a patch on American uh, kind of ardent Christianity in, in in the U.S. Since I lived there for about fifteen twenty years, so. That's why I have a, sw a slight American twang to my formerly pucker English accent. <laughs> so, um, but it was really interesting at this conference that they, um, in a way, they were coming out of the closet, and that the very fact that it was headlined as as mindfulness and the Dharma, and and most of John's keynote speech was about the uh, the um, significance of Buddhism, and he and he talked about why he was. Um, very happy to have me give the opening talk, and, and that the fact that I, I was there for the conference, he felt that was you know, very significant. So I think that the, the the movement has gathered enough strength now that they can they can sort of bring forth those more uh, classical elements. There are still some, like Mark Williams, who are very ardently want to keep the whole ethical element out, and that there's all kinds of psychological issues about. Um, uh, which, you, if you talk with therapists, um, that say teasing apart uh, conduct and uh, mental well-being, there's, there's all there's all kinds of, of well considered by the therapists uh, reasons why they as a they, they feel as an important need to to separate out the conduct element from the mental well-being element. Personally, I I disagree. <laughs> I, I think that's. I understand, I feel I understand their reasoning, and I had a long conversation with a therapist um, uh, a little while ago about this. Um, uh, I was asked to do a, a, a day-long workshop at St. Mary's Hospital in London for a, uh, for a um, bunch of clinical psychologists. And uh, so I had an extensive discussion with the, the, uh, the woman who was the organizer and who's the head of clinical psychology at, at St. Mary's. Uh, Agnes, um, and uh, so they're, they're, they're very good reasons, and I don't, I don't want to put that down, and, and it's something that's been given a lot of thought in their field, but personally I disagree, and that uh, I feel that uh, the Buddha's, in the Buddha's teaching, uh, he points to the, the very natural relationship between our conduct and our sense of self, uh, well-being and self-worth, and our own, in a sense, comfort within our own lives. You know, how we how we are at home in our own life, because it can be very simplistic. I, and I did bring it up during the day. I touched on it during the, the day long at St Mary's, um, but I didn't pursue it uh, in in any detail. But I, uh, that 
and it can seem and if there are any therapists here you can you can sort of correct me <laughs> but to, to me that it, it might seem oversimplistic but to say well one of the reasons I feel bad about myself is, is because I do things that are regrettable if I've done something that is dishonest that is selfish that is uh, abusive of others that is disrespectful then the fact that I feel bad about myself or I feel regret I take that as a sign of mental well-being and in Buddhist psychology we call that hiriotapa so that if I tell you a lie if I deceive you if I um, uh, make some kind of derogatory remark uh, uh, about men or about Americans or about people who ask questions about <laughs> ethics and <laughs> then uh, and I think uh, and I realized well that was a, a kind of snide remark that was un that was disrespectful that was unkind uh, that was uh, then the that painful feeling um, is useful because uh, the understanding of that the 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 quality of hiriotopa these uh, here and Otapa are called the guardians of the world. Like, if you're familiar with the temple here, as you go in the main doors, there are these two sort of devatas, one on the left, one on the right, one with a blue background, one with a red background. They represent Hiri and Otapa, which is uh, Hiri is conscience or moral sensitivity, so that Hiri is that's the painful feeling that you experience when you tell a lie, or you hurt someone, or you you act. Um, in a dishonest way, hiri, and then otapa is the the um, recoiling from the unwholesome. So when you see somebody else acting in an un, uh, in a, a violent way or an unskillful way, that in that in you which recoils from the unwholesome is uh, otapa. There's there's different you know, interpretations of the words, but that's roughly how they're represented. And the Buddha said, like a like a sinew dropped into a fire, you know, automatically recoils from the flame. It rolls up and and retracts from the flame, so too the, the heart ret retracts, recoils from the unskillful, the unwholesome. That's otapa. So they're called the guardians of the world. So just like physical pain protects the body, yeah, the, our ancestors who didn't feel pain died young, <laughs> mostly without offspring, because they didn't protect themselves from infection, from, from being harmed by animals or by, by wounds, because it didn't hurt. So then they got infected and they died young. So the ones that felt pain survived. That's why we feel pain. Is that those are our ancestors from way back in the mists. So pain is really useful. And it's a rare medical condition whereby someone, someone's born without the capacity to feel physical pain. They, apparently, they don't usually live past 20 or 25 because the body is so damaged. There's a few doctors here that can corroborate. They usually, the, the body is so compromised and so damaged um, with all of the repairing it has to do that it's... It, uh, Usually they don't last into their thirties. So pain is really unpleasant, but it's useful. So hiriotapa is similarly; it's, it's painful. It hurts. It's a, it's a psychological pain, but it's a useful pain. So rather than feeling bad about myself because I deceive you, or because I've said some kind of snide remark, or I've been disrespectful towards you, um, that pain is useful because it's saying that was an unskillful thing. If I if I grasp hold of it and identify with it, oh, I'm so awful. I'm supposed to be a Buddhist monk. I'm supposed to be a kind of torchbearer for for, for kindness and wisdom. And I was just made a, a snide remark to this guy. Um, then that that 
self-view has grabbed hold of that painful feeling and turned it into a guilt trip, which is which is harmful. That which is a, a definitely obstruction. That's a negative. A consequent. There's negative consequences that come from that. That uh, sakayatiti self-view is fed by that. But on its own, without self-view, it's useful. That oh, that wasn't really honest. That was not quite true. That was not a kind thing to say. And uh, you know, there was a. Uh, there was a, a a nastiness there. There was a kind of arrogance there, uh, that's 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 ugly. That's, that's unskillful. So that that recognition is really useful. That pain wakes you up, <laughs> just like physical pain protects the body. Then that uh, psychological pain protects your your heart, protects your mind, so that you know, okay, don't go there. Oh, that's that's a, you know, that's painful territory to to um, to to go into. So then. Ethics, to me, is like if you really want to feel good about yourself, stop doing things that are regrettable. <laughs> it's a, a kind of very simplistic approach to you know, Buddhist psychology or behavior therapy. But to me, it's, it's intrinsic in the Buddha's path. If you stop doing things that are regrettable, if you stop hurting others or taking things that are not yours, if you stop um, being you know, driven by self-advantage, etc., etc., You'll feel much more comfortable in your own skin, and that that he says that you know when you are, when you are, uh, when you practice sila, then there's no need to to think have there's no need to have the thought may I be free from remorse because if you keep the, the sila then you'll naturally be free from remorse, uh, and then one who is free from remorse they don't have to think uh, may I uh, may I be relaxed and at ease because one who is free from remorse is na naturally their body is relaxed and their heart feels at ease. And one who is uh, at ease and contented, there's no need for them to wish, may my mind be, uh, may my mind be easily concentrated, because one who is relaxed and contented, uh, it's completely natural for them to be able to focus the mind, because the mind is, you know, you're comfortable where you are, so you're not always trying to race off to be in the past or the future or somewhere else. And for one who is, whose mind is easily concentrated, there's no need for them to think, uh, may I, uh, may, um, insight arise in me because for one whose mind is concentrated then it's natural for insight and understanding of the way things are to arise and uh, and when that insight arises there's no there's no need to to wish um may i experience the knowledge and vision of freedom because for one who has insight then freedom and and knowledge and vision naturally arises so he he, pa he paints this whole uh, causal chain that starts off with moral conduct with with sila and that it's like a, a completely natural and, and uh, ordinary process. And so to, to me, to take out the ethical element and still call it mindfulness, in a way you're, you're extracting something that really needs to be there. It's like, okay, well, let's try and run a body without a liver. It can do it, takes a bit of machinery, you know, or take the kidneys out and just go on dialysis. Yeah, that, well, we can do it. But it's a, it's, there's a lot of hardware that's needed <laughs> to make it happen. So to me, I, I, it's a, a lengthy answer to your question, but I feel that sooner or later they will discover the, uh, you know, the, the, the psychological power of ethics. And that there'll be the, it'll be after, because yeah, mindfulness is already now being replaced by compassion. It's kind of now sort of compassion therapy. Is the, that's the sort of the new mot du jour. It's compassion is really, it's the, you know, the, the, the compassionate, I forget the title now, that um, someone called Gilbert. Paul Gilbert. Paul Gilbert, thank you very much. <laughs> I knew.
yeah, the compassionate mind. So that's that's sort of the next stage beyond mindfulness. And and uh, I'm not a gambling person, but if I was, I bet you, <laughs> within two or three years, ethics will be discovered as the new therapy, you know, the new sort of therapeutic tool. That's uh, wow, this is incredible. If you stop lying to people, you don't have to be anxious about, uh, yeah. And uh, and afraid, you know, if you if you're honest, then you don't have to be uh, worried about being caught. You know, you don't have, if you if you don't harm people, you don't have to worry about them attacking you. That people will know. I mean, I'm not trying to be too. I'm being slightly facetious, <laughs> but uh, you know, people will notice. Well, you do this, you get that. These, this is the cause and effect. There are these results that come from it, and the very fact that that connection is there, and people are not stupid. They'll see that. Oh, you know, you really have. If you, if you ignore that element, then there's a whole um, s slew of problems that, that come with that. And uh, so that then there'll be some way of bringing that the ethics, ethical element into it. I predict. <laughs> so on that note, I think we've slipped past four o'clock, so I think that's enough for today. So I wish you all well. I'm... Uh, uh, somebody else will be doing the uh, Sunday afternoon talk next week since I'm beginning a uh, two-week-long solo retreat from Wednesday. So I'll hand you over to the others.